Hello and welcome to Model View Conversation, America's premier tech education podcast, and a very special hello to our listeners in Thailand. I'm Brian Gates. And I'm Ben Gongi. And we've completed our two-week look at all the different kind of developer roles you can have working in a software company. And this week, we're going to transition over to talking about some of the sort of development-adjacent possibilities. Right. The jobs that are either perhaps on the development team or maybe right next to the development team, but don't actually involve coding or at least don't involve coding in uh, kind of the traditional way. I'm actually looking at the list here. There's a couple here that do have, sometimes have coding tasks, uh, but frequently these are things that are critically important to the success of the product, but not something that involves sort of day-to-day effort in a code editor. And this will make more sense as we go through the list. So let's uh, maybe first run through the list to give you an idea of what's coming up. We'll be talking about uh, UI, UX people, QA, DBA, that's the end of the acronyms, DevOps, and now we get to actual words, product owner, and project manager. Don't we love a good uh, either acronym or initialism or, or or silly abbreviated words like DevOps? It's such a common thing in the technical world. It's so much more efficient. Who has time to say two or three syllables? Right. I mean, if we're not if we don't want to write long words in code, why would we want to say them? Right. Right. So let's start with uh, UI UX. Right. That's I think probably the the closest maybe to sort of the work that we do, only in the sense that it affects the screens and the, and the experience that we're building as a product. And especially for someone who's in front-end development, as I am, and probably also for uh, for app developers, as Ben is, these are people who could be working cheek by jowl, to use an expression from, I don't know, 500 years ago. I was say the 30s? What? Yes. <laughs> what is that? We're working very close with each other, with these people in UI, UX. These are abbreviations uh, for user interface and user experience design. Yeah, so it's not UE, it's UX. Uh, I think probably because U, UX sounds better, I suppose, as a as an initialism. Um, yeah, and I think that's very true, that, that in both of our sort of chosen developer fields, uh, UI, UX is pretty critically important to both because we both work on the front end, uh, meaning something that is, the front end is just sort of, a term used to describe software that has an interface to the user, to the human, right? Um, an API, something that is on the what we call the back end, is typically uh, software that communicates with other computers, other software. And so it doesn't have a traditional interface to the human. It talks through things like JSON and network requests and stuff like that. Um, whereas with front end, with, with anything that involves an interface to a human, you have to think about things like buttons and colors and arrangement and, and how to make it uh, easy for your user to be able to interact with the computer, to enter the data that they need to enter, to be able to get the data back out that they need to see. That kind of stuff. And this is probably the role that is most likely to uh, not be its own distinct job. If a team is, is sort of small and constrained, this might be something that if you're a, an iPhone or Android developer, you could be responsible for the, the programming of the app and also for the user interface. Or if you're a front-end web developer, you could be responsible for, well, JavaScript, HTML, and CSS, and not just designing it according to someone else's vision, but coming up with that vision yourself. Yeah, unfortunately, UI and UX as a, as a discipline, I feel like is not as is not as respected in the industry as I think it should be, because that is a task and a job that is critically important. 
if you don't have a good user interface, if you don't have a good user experience, and what we mean by the differentiation there is typically user interface describes kind of a lower level aspect of it. So we're talking about individual screens, individual um, interfaces full of content, whereas the user experience is more about kind of a higher level view of the entire app. Things like the way the app flows from screen to screen, how the user progresses through a workflow of perhaps entering new data or retrieving new data um, and making sure that that experience flows well and is, is obvious and straightforward, is accessible so that people who have um, accessibility issues like perhaps low vision or hearing issues or whatever, um, that they can uh, still interact with that content. So the user experience designer is typically kind of focused on, they can do both, but they kind of are generally focused on the, the broader aspects of the the overall experience of the whole app rather than an individual screen. And so you can imagine that that is it's critically important yeah. in order to get that right. Um, if you don't get that right, you can end up with software that is poorly designed and, and difficult to use. Um, as a sort of a timely example, I haven't dug too deep into it, but the Iowa caucus in the United States <laughs> just recently happened as part of our election. And they are, the people involved are blaming in part the software that was used, I think, on a mobile application for all these different precincts to report in on uh, the results of this these these votes, um, they're explaining it as a, a software coding bug. I'm not sure if it was an interface problem or if it was more of a uh, you know an, inter an interaction between the app and, and a server or something. Uh, but as an example, you know you can see there that that it's it's critically important to get it right. In, in in similar fashion, the 2000 elections in the United States involved uh, physical paper ballots that were designed poorly, and you ended up with uh, people being confused. So whether it's physical items or digital items, the way that information is presented and how you ask to uh, to take input from your user is very important. And if you get it wrong, it can be disastrous. So it's something that's that's very important. And if, if those kinds of concerns are things that interest you and, and you like that challenge, and you found that you want to be involved in creating software, but the idea of actually writing, you know, individual lines of code just doesn't really work for you, this might be a way to be intimately involved with that technical team and, and getting solutions built, but doing it kind of just from a different perspective. And Ben mentioned earlier on that this is the kind of thing that has not been historically well, um, I don't know about well-respected, but just not kind of thought of in general, because for a long time, it was not an independent role. It was kind of enough to say, well, I have an app, right? Not everybody has an app. I have one, therefore I win. Or I have, I have a website. That means people who want my stuff have to go to my website. And that worked 20 years ago, but anymore, uh, there are, there's just a lot of competition for everything out there. And so it's very important more so than ever that when people get to your site out of all or your app out of all the choices they have, they need to have a very seamless, pain-free, intuitive experience where there's no frustration about, well, how do I, how do I find a product or how do I see what options are available for my, my plane flight or what's the checkout like? Do, is it a, a one button click or do I have to enter information and, and kind of search for buttons and, and fields and stuff? And uh, it's the kind of thing that another reason that I think people overlook it is because it's designed to disappear. Good user interface is something that you don't have to think about because it is that intuitive. Which makes you kind of, I think, not appreciate it unless it's bad. Right. Right. The only time you really notice UI 
uh, as a user is when it's not good. I mean, you might occasionally notice it when it's really good. As Certainly as a developer, I notice things that are positive experiences because I because I know how hard it is to do that well. Um, like, for example, I, I always like to applaud um, the Chick-fil-A iOS app. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's mostly just because their user flow and how you can order food inside the app. And it's not only is the app really easy to use and straightforward, you know, ordering food is is uh could be it's a it's a pretty complicated process because you have to pick out what you want and then they have to display this is what you're going to get these are the options that you can adjust if you want you know if it's a sandwich and let's say you want to take something off or add something to it you have to the panera bread app is actually also very good in that same way where you can easily customize the things you want and i find that i like doing that kind of thing i like to interact with a restaurant in that way um, when I'm going to you know, go pick it up and bring it home or something because it tends to um, increase the accuracy of the order, right? If I can go into the app and I can very specifically configure it, then the person on the other side will get a ticket, right? That, that has all the specific stuff that I want. And it basically, as long as I, as long as they follow the ticket, it'll be correct. Whereas in an interaction over a speaker box through a drive through or going inside and talking to a, an employee at the counter, it's basically a two-step translation. I have to say it, they have to hear it, and they have to enter that information in the computer, and then someone has to go fulfill the order. So it's two people have to interpret what I said, whereas if it's through the app, I get to enter the information directly, and then all they have to do is just you know read the directions and, and fulfill it. So it kind of removes one of the poss possible translation problems that can occur in that flow. Um, and so to me, that's an example of really good design, right? They, uh, in Chick-fil-A's case, they have a sort of a problem of often being overrun with customers. And so they wanted to figure out a way to streamline that process. And, it, and, they, and they've used, in large part, they've used software to do it and, and good design to do it. I notice when I go through the drive-thru sometimes, they'll have a, somebody, rather than using the speaker box, they'll actually have a person standing that walks over to you. Yeah, standing out there. And they have a tablet, and they're like, what do you, you know, what would you like? And you just, you tell them what you want, and they tap it in. And I don't ever see them having a problem with that tablet. I haven't seen what that interface looks like, but I would guess that the same people that probably built the, the customer-facing iOS app probably also designed their tablet software um, and it also appears to be very intuitive and easy to use because again i don't see them fumbling with it which again important right to get that right to make it so that that employee can get their job done efficiently it requires good ui and we're not saying anything about fast food workers because i think we've all had the experience of getting on some kind of app or website where people with graduate degrees are just stupefied <laughs> you know what on yeah. earth am i supposed to do here yeah, it's it's not a matter of 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 the audience of the user or whatever. It's it's a purely a matter of the design. And so you you notice you tend to not notice things with design when they go well because because you think, well, that's just how it's supposed to be, right? That's obvious. There was a really common kind of um uh feeling after the iPhone debuted in 2007 where suddenly everyone decided, well, of course Right. This this was inevitable. The the little candy bar brick screen, no keyboard, uh, purely software driven, high quality, you know, display and good networking style device pocket computer. Right. That was an inevitable outcome of the way that we were headed. And there's no way that Apple would have created anything any different. Right. And if they hadn't been around, someone else would have just invented the same thing. <laughs> I think that is very much. <laughs> armchair quarterbacking yes. the day after the game right like that is not that is not at all the inevitable outcome if you look at the design of those kinds of devices pre-iphone they looked nothing like the iphone so you know that that's what i'm sort of just trying to point out is that is not to sort of dunk on on people who didn't like the iphone initially but instead to say that it is easy to discount 
hard work when it, from a design perspective when you see the finished product because you're like, well, obviously, of course, it's how it's supposed to be. Whereas bad design, it's I, I feel like most people can point out examples of really bad design. But they have a harder time saying why it's bad design. It's true. Yeah, so I don't, and I don't know quite why that is. Do you, do, you, do you know why that would be, why they can identify it, but then they can't sort of go in depth? Boy, that's a great question. I think, uh, as we've been saying, because good design is so intuitive, it's just separate from sort of the conscious mind where you're, you're forming words around things and you just get this bad feeling if good design is no longer there. I guess it's kind of like, I, I, was, I don't remember where it was, but I was reading an article in the last couple of months about how in English, there is actually a specific order for adjectives to fall in a sentence pre- before the noun. And I don't remember what the order is. And I, and I could not describe to you like the technical process to create like an ordering of adjectives in front of a noun. But if you, if you said a phrase that included several adjectives and a noun and you said it in the wrong order, I could tell you that it's wrong. And I could say, and I could also fix it. I could, you could say it, and I could say that's incorrect. You should say it like this because that feels or sounds better. But I don't, I don't remember the underlying like technical reason. Um, and I also, and and the the article is actually talking about how nobody does. Like it's it's just this intrinsic thing that humans who speak English learn as part of the learning of the language, and they just they just know how to do it correctly, but they don't even think about it. And maybe maybe that's kind of a similar. Uh, phenomenon to design where you know it's such a part of your everyday life and it's so you know it's so entrenched into everything that you do i mean if you think about it everything is designed in everything that's man-made is designed in some way uh, either on purpose or by accident i looked up that rule for english it's it absolutely has to be opinion size age shape color origin material purpose and this is a, a great quote so you can have a lovely little old rectangular green french silver whittling knife but if you mess with that word order in the slightest you'll sound like a maniac let's try a little lovely old rectangular yeah that already sounds weird right it already sounds bad lovely old no 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 no. lovely little old but why is that why does the one sound right and the other one sound wrong i don't and has you not described that that that's that phrasing to me you know the the ordering I still would have been able to tell you that it was wrong. Right. But I wouldn't have been able to say, well, the category you have to put first is is opinion. Like I wouldn't have known that. Uh but I but I would have been able to fix it for you. It's so it's so interesting. Yeah, even having uh, looked up that rule and then covered up the window where I saw it. I can't repeat it to you 10 seconds later. No. But if you <laughs> right. give me 10,000 sentences in English and half of them follow the rule and half don't, you know, I'm sure I'll be perfect with that because half of them will just right (laughs) yeah you just instantly go oh yikes (laughs) much like my my, one of my colleagues we were talking about uh code differences like the nerd war stuff Mm -hmm. and i said that my preference was two spaces uh rather than four for indention and he and he actually he literally used like the little green puke emoji in slack to describe (laughs) he said he preferred four friend of that guy you know (laughs) two is correct two is the right answer No, I, I I agree with you, but but it's just funny how people how you can have such a visceral reaction to to things that are relatively trivial. Like you know, like you put the order of the edges the wrong way, and it's just like I feel not good. Like, you know. so if you have that kind of visceral reaction to some web pages and and apps where you think this should be a different way, or better yet, if you have some sense of not only should this be different, but I know how it should be different. Or if you'd like to figure out how it should be different, then UI UX might be something to look into. 
Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really great way to kind of go about uh, organizing your thoughts and feelings about these different job possibilities. If you're if you're just starting out, I think we gave different examples uh, in the previous episodes about the technical parts of, of coding itself and kind of which ones you might gravitate towards. And I think that's a, what you just said, Brian, is a really great way to kind of uh, think about if UI UX would be a good uh, good fit for you, if you bristle often at at poor design and 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 like like Brian said, you can even identify what might not be great about it. Then that sounds to me like you're you're naturally inclined to that um, that field of study. Right. So that's one role. Is if you uh, if you don't want the world to be less than it could be, and you want to make things more beautiful and more performant, UI UX. Now let's look at people who think a different way. <laughs> yes. Uh, if, if conversely, you feel like everything uh, deserves to be eviscerated um, <laughs> and, and broken down into its constituent parts and, and, uh, and you like to tell people who've created such things why they're wrong, if, if, if your favorite part of Festivus is the... The airing of the grievances. Then QA might be for you. Right. The, the QA lead at my new company, his uh, Slack identifier is Team Break Stuff. <laughs> nice, nice. Because these are, QA stands for quality assurance, and these are the people uh, to whom the developers have to prove themselves. After we've written a feature or uh, fixed a bug, at least in our own minds, on our own machine, it then gets delivered to the quality assurance people who really go after it, you know, hammer and tongs, and try to find ways to make your precious creation just crumble to dust. <laughs> Quality assurance sounds like such a positive term, doesn't it? But yeah. <laughs> it's it's actually uh, it's actually not. Uh, and and we're joking, of course. Quality assurance is very important. Um, it's critically important. It's just as important as UI UX because in addition to having the app uh, that you're building, the product that you're building work well on a, from an inter interface standpoint, and, and having it so that it's clear and obvious and intuitive. If the code literally doesn't function, that is also a way in which the product can fail in front of the user. And that is equally as bad. So quality assurance QA for short um, is a team of people that is that their their main function is to is to actually seek out and and hunt hunt out the bugs that occur, that are happening inside your application, which are typically uh, going to be mistakes in the code itself, where you've you've told the computer to do the wrong thing, um, or perhaps you think the code is written the right way. These are the ones that are more insidious. You think the code is written in a way that conv that conveys the intent of what you want the computer to do, but the computer interprets it differently, and you end up with a result that you didn't expect. And that's pretty much the root of all bugs on in software is, like I always tell my students, uh, the computer does not ever do what you want. It only does what you tell it. And sometimes... Sometimes those things are the same thing, and that's great. That's that's the intended outcome. And sometimes those things are different, where what you want and what you tell it are two different things. It's never going to be able to intuit what you want. It can only do what you say. There's also a big class of problems, what we call edge cases, where uh, the software might be perfectly adequate for the normal kind of operation, but if something a little bit different happens, maybe... The user has a nice flow through checkout from the store, but then presses the checkout button twice. Well, what does that do? You know, or what if somebody else tries to sign up with the same username at the same time? Do both people get to, get to have an account with the same uh, email address or something? Uh, so there are a lot of different little situations that are kind of not obvious because they're not what would happen in the normal what we call the happy path flow of operation, but they're just little weird 
occasional cases that can pop up. And that's something that QA has to really search for diligently and try to come up with, how can we get the software into a position where things go wrong? Yeah, not only are those things not obvious in general to sort of anyone, but I think they're particularly not obvious to the developers on the team. Right. Because think about all those times where QA or a user sends in a bug report or anything uh, like that, where you get a report on the software and, and the person says, I did X, Y, and Z, and it produced this weird result. Like, what's up with that, right? And your immediate response as the developer on the team is, why did you do that? That's silly. Why would you press the checkout button two times? You want to check out, just check out once. And that's because you as a developer on the team have an intimate knowledge of how the code is structured and you always are going to code to the happy path, right? You're always going to say, the most efficient way to get this done is to do is to do these steps and then to wait for the user to press a button. They, they press a single time because why would they do anything else? And then once that button is pressed a single time, you respond to that button press and you execute the commands to, you know, let's say, check out the, the, the items from the store and kind of process the payment and stuff. Um, you never think... Well, what happens if they press it twice? Or what happens if I present a text field that I'm asking for their uh, their zip code and they put letters in there that are not numbers, right? Why would I even bother to check for the fact that there's no that there might not be numbers in there because I'm asking for the zip code? Why would you give me anything else? Uh, I think it's a very normal reaction for a developer to to have to that because that's, we're so focused on getting the app to work, right? Our job is to make the app work, and the sort of the user's job indirectly, and certainly the QA people's job pretty much directly is to get the app to not function properly so that we can then fix those edge cases and uh, and make it so it's more robust. Um, but I think that's where that's really where our blind spot is as a developer on the team. Because we know what the end goal is supposed to be. And so we can get tunnel vision of, all right, at, at this step, I know that I need to enter this kind of information. And the next thing I'm supposed to do is to click this button over here. And I know that because I put the button there in the first place. But people coming in from the outside are going to imagine all kinds of other possibilities that just won't occur to us. And the QA person has to get themselves into the mindset of everybody else and, and try to think, what might they do? Not what should they do, but what might they do? Yeah, and, and, and certainly it's the case that users will do anything and everything. <laughs> if you can imagine a scenario, a permutation of, of steps to be followed, some users are going to do that at some point. And you have to be able to cover that as uh, in your code. And the way to do that is to is to have not just sort of that happen by accident, and then maybe this the user will send in a bug report that you might see, and then spoiler alert: no, they won't. <laughs> no, they won't. Um, so that's why QA exists, right? Because they their goal is to go bug hunting and and actively seek out those problems, so that we can solve them before a user even encounters them, and then we have better software. Jumping back on to. Uh... To Twitter again, a good resource for this kind of thing. Here's a joke that I'd, I'd heard and remembered. A QA engineer walks into a bar, orders a beer, orders two beers, orders zero beers, orders 999,999 beers, orders a lizard, orders negative one beers, orders a UICBKJKJDHP. <laughs> Actual customer walks in and asks where the bathroom is, the bar bursts into flames. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. The point there is that the QA engineer is responsible for not just, all right, let's do the normal expected thing and order a, a beer or a, you know, a small integer number of beers, but what if weird things, what if someone tries something odd like zero or a giant number or not a number? 
yeah, lizard, for example. How does the software respond to that kind of input? And then the the kind of punchline is, what if somebody does something not connected to what you thought was the only thing you were testing, but something else that could happen within the app, like a- asking a simple question? They they have to sort of uh, to to borrow from a famous uh, quote, like they have to be able to. They have to be able to do what is expected. They have to be able to test, okay, these are the paths that we want users to go through. Make sure those work first. And then let's try and imagine the normal, typical little oops kind of things that, that might occur, right? The known unknowns, right? The things that are, that are we, we know that, uh, that these might happen and we don't know what the outcome is going to be there. So let's test those. And then, of course, there's all the, like, the weird, crazy stuff giant numbers lizards things that are that that it might actually never occur right giant lizards also <laughs> giant lizards yeah also very unlikely um they but they might never actually be encountered in the in the in the world by the app a user might never enter that but it's good to cover those cases as many of them as we can because you never know a user might enter that information and then we have to be able to and if nothing else right the just kind of like a pilot's job over everything else is to fly the plane that is their primary and really only responsibility doesn't matter what else is happening on the plane the primary responsibility of the pilot is to fly it to make sure it doesn't crash and the same thing is true of an app i think if nothing else the app should not crash ever uh in production right it should always be able to at least say Wow, this input is terrible, right? This is this is I don't know what to do with this. I'm going to spit it back to you or I'm going to just sort of not do anything or I'm going to throw up an error, but I'm not going to like you said burst into flames. I'm not I'm not going to just fall on the floor and have a temper tantrum and and completely freak out. So if you're the kind of person who I would say not just is capable of a pessimistic mindset in terms of looking at something and imagining all the ways it can go wrong, but ideally, if you're someone who sort of delights in that pessimistic mindset and <laughs> yeah. and enjoys finding, oh, I gotcha, the negative one beers, you didn't handle that one right, send it back. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's a great way to, to think about it. So it's kind of a cat and mouse game sometimes between the, the QA and the developer of... In a friendly in a way, friendly of course, way, right? In a friendly way. We 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 can, yes. but but it's it's all it's all in service to make the team better and smarter and more efficient, and to make the app the same. And, and probably QA, uh, you said was comparable in importance to UI UX. I would really they're, I think they're more critical because with UI UX, probably the worst case scenario is people just stop using your app and you go out of business. If a serious enough bug gets through that's pretty critical but if it's if, if a serious critical. enough bug gets through you know something around like pricing or ordering or something you can end up not just out of business but owing a ton of money because you know you you sold something for zero dollars accidentally or if your software is you know running a machine that provides radiation doses to cancer patients right flight control for airliners to take other notable QA failures. Right, or a rocket, right, that's going to go into space or, you know, or a satellite that has to communicate with things on the on the ground. Um, those things, of course, are, are even higher stakes and, and having bugs in those. I mean, the you know, a physical bug that happened with the Hubble Space Telescope was that the lens was incorrectly uh, configured. And so it was, I believe, nearsighted, where basically it couldn't... It, faraway images which is exactly what it was designed to capture were blurry right because it's a telescope in space <laughs> so they had to fix the bug by flying into space with a new lens and replacing 
the lens in space. And so that's an example of a, an extremely expensive bug that got through um, and, and then cost uh, NASA a whole bunch of money to fix. Yeah, you really want to be assured of quality in situations like that. Kind of, I think, maybe something that's similar in in scope um, and in, and importance, but is just a ve- from a very different perspective, is in addition to making sure the software reacts properly to things, you also want to make sure that the software stores the data in the correct way um, and then can retrieve that data in a consistent way, something that my dad does for a living, DBA. So DBA stands for Database Administrator. Um, and this is typically a job that is, I would say, most certainly all teams deserve to have a QA department that, that builds software. Uh, I think all teams deserve to have a UI UX uh, group if they have an actual interface, if it's not just backend stuff. Um, and that isn't certainly always true, but that, I think that's deserving of that. All teams that, that sort of have a sufficiently large database, similarly, I think deserve to have someone who is in charge of maintaining the integrity of that. Um, the the data is, is important. In particular, we're talking about like, you know, uh, the data that we're using to to figure out how much radiation to give a cancer patient, or how much rocket fuel to just you know to dispense out to the engines to make it fly properly, right? Like the the data itself is also critically important to get the it's 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 part and parcel of producing the correct answers, uh, and so having someone that can uh, maintain that integrity is important. And this is the, the probably the longest running stuff, you know, if you have like a, an online store, you want to know what customers have ordered in the past so you can suggest things that they seem to like, or if you have some kind of educational material, uh, keep track of people's progress through the curriculum and how each person has answered every question and how everybody has done on particular questions. And you can get data that stretches back years, if not decades. So this is, uh, I think, a, a different kind of role in that sense because you just have longer time horizons to deal with. And it's also very easy, I think, for developers on the team who interact with the database to make decisions in the code that seem perfectly reasonable um, but end up end up causing destruction and mayhem in the database itself because they maybe don't have a larger context or they don't understand the underlying issues there or whatever. It's it's very, I think it can be very easy to inadvertently as a developer of sort of the, the either the front end or back end software and you're interacting with the database and trying to either put data in or get data out um, that you can, particularly when you're putting it in, you can put it in in a way that is not going to be consistent and, uh, and not going to produce a result that is, you know, a, the same result every time you do it. Um, and, and that can lead to problems. I mean, my dad's sort of famous example is uh, you're storing data about people and you store both their birth date, the date of their birth, and their current age. That is an example of poor database design because you're, you're storing a finite number that will never change. It's fine. And then you're also storing a number that's going to change every year. And so unless you actively have processes in place to update that number, then as soon as they have a birthday, that data is now wrong. And as soon as the data is wrong in the database, the database has failed you as a solution because it's really just like a pilot. It's only real responsibility is to make sure that the data you put in comes back out in a consistent and truthful, right? It has to be the truth. And if you're, if it's if it's wrong, then it can't be trusted. And a second problem with that, from a, a database perspective, is that's 
what uh, we would call derived data, which your age is not a number that you need to write down and carry around with you, because if you know what your birthday is and you know what today's date is, then you can calculate how old you are anytime you want to. And a computer can do that really fast. So there's really, it, if you're not doing yourselves any uh, any favors by storing that data, because uh, the likelihood of it being wrong is so much higher than uh, the inconvenience of having the computer have to calculate that because it's going to take mere milliseconds for it to do so. Now, I would say that the DBA role, although it's a, a very old and venerable profession, I remember the very first software-ish company that I worked for, uh, we were a, a biotech company, but we were building this expert system. There were Java developers who were also responsible for the UI because that's all there was. Uh, the QA role was basically me as more of a, a science-minded person. This was before I got into software, and I would just I would use the system and you know complain when I couldn't do something. We did have a dedicated DBA. That was a role that existed, and this is back in the early two thousands. More lately, it seems like this is something that is either kind of merging with the next category of things we're going to talk about, DevOps, or sometimes becomes uh, commoditized, meaning you just pay somebody else to maintain your database as a service. Have have you felt that trend too, Ben, or is that just uh, idiosyncrasy of mine? Um, I think in some respects, uh, very much yes. Uh, in particular, in places that are, um, in organizations that are smaller, right? Startups tend to, tend to need kind of turnkey solutions that are not only, um, that you can stand up quickly and that you can uh, utilize without a ton of expertise. Um, but that also adapt quickly to, to the very dynamic and changing nature of a startup itself, right? It's the startup kind of by definition is the company trying to figure out its business model. And that might necessitate sometimes pretty drastic changes to the way that data is being stored. And I feel like that things like, um, you know, databases as a service, or I've even heard like backend as a service, B-A-A-S as a, as a term, um, where where it's providing the database and even the interface to the database, right? The, the API that you use to talk to the database. Um, so like Firebase is an example of, I think, pretty much like a, you know, a, a quick and easy full-blown, like it can be your whole backend if you want, um, where it can store the data and it can also uh, provide an interface to get to, to that data. Um, I think that's certainly become very popular. What I've noticed though, is that uh, while that is all, those are all excellent resources and it, and it really democratizes access to these kinds of things. Um, it seems like once you get to a level of complexity and maturity um, of the product that uh, you kind of need to graduate to more complicated solutions. It's I think a pretty natural progression. And at, and at that stage, I think that's where someone like a DBA really becomes useful. I mean, the product my dad works on is a 25 year old currently, you know, still running uh, project for the for the government um, and they you know they have had he's been their DBA for 20 of those years um, and uh, it's it's data that is uh, very important and 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 highly structured and highly uh, what am I trying to say relational uh, so the a lot of those backends and sort of database as a service things um, they tend to like to use something called NoSQL which is a a service that uh, it's it's a way to, to to arrange the data that is not as highly structured. The downside, of course, is that the structure can give you can can help you, but it can also hinder you if you're at a point where you are trying to rapidly iterate on the design of that database structure. 
um, that that rigidity can be kind of a hindrance. So having the flexible, you know, flexibility there is great. Um, but I feel like eventually you get to a point where where the the flexibility kind of beca can become a problem. Like I was saying before, the developers can kind of be putting stuff in there that in, like in the wrong way that then kind of messes things up. Um, whereas if you have a more rigid structure that has a database administrator kind of as an intermediate to guide the developers to to putting the data in in a re in a regimented way, um, I feel like that can start to really pay dividends to the to the product once it has matured and it it, it can benefit from those um, more structured that more stru structured setup. And the, I think the structure, if structure appeals to you, then I think a DBA role could be a good one in a couple of ways. For one, uh, like Ben said, startups tend to take DBA as one of their last things. So if, uh, if you're going to be wanting to work in a very small, kind of flexible, agile team, there's probably less chance that there's going to be a DBA role there. But if you uh, are more comfortable with an organization that's been around for a long time, uh, probably a bigger place, maybe something that has very sensitive data that they want to hold on premises, you know, behind locked doors, uh, something in the military, something with banks or insurance companies or, you know, great big organizations that uh, it's really important to keep what they know out of the hands of anybody else, then that kind of structure if that appeals to you, then DBA could be a good place. And also if you're the kind of person who likes structured data. If you like play around with spreadsheets and, and try to figure things out um, statistically, I don't know, like tracking home prices in your neighborhood or seeing where interest rates go. Maybe if you're kind of a, a stock maven and have, have a bunch of data and you try to figure out how the market's going to move, TPA uh, might be somebody. If you're like a baseball fan, I think baseball is sort of notorious for yeah. for joining together long lists of of weird sounding statistics like oh this pitcher has gone uh, 18 strikeouts in a row pitching against left-handers on Tuesday west right. west of the Mississippi River during day games like oh how on earth do you know all that but if you if you like to have all these different kinds of pieces of information and then stitch them together to find facts that other people aren't aware of DBA. And to call back to our previous, the two episodes from before, uh, we also talked about data science as its own thing. And I feel like in many ways, there are lots of kind of crossover possibilities yeah. here with both with data science, machine learning, and database administration. Um, because typically a, a data scientist needs, of course, a bank of data to analyze. And so you're gonna have to put that somewhere and it's probably gonna go in a database. Um, I don't quote me on this. I think we teach my I think we teach Postgres at Lambda School for <laughs> Data Science. I, I don't actually know, though. Um, it's it's going to be one of those. Uh, but the point really being that we use a structured kind of relational database, um, which is really the, the, the bread and butter of a DBA. Um, so uh, you could either uh, perhaps create a role that is, you know, somewhat of a hybrid of data scientists and DBA, or, or if you just, you like the idea of working with data scientists, but you don't want to sort of do that work yourself, a way to be, very close to that would be to uh, be a database administrator because um, at larger organizations, they're going to need a way to to structure and organize the data that is going to be used as part of that analysis. And there's another form of structure. You you mentioned your uh, your school teaches either MySQL or PostgreSQL, and in either case there, the S stands for structure. It does, yes. In fact, it does. <laughs> yeah, so really, I think uh, uh, Brian's advice about 
if those are the kinds of things that interest you, that might be a good fit. And, and I love the baseball analogy. If t- to me that does that, I I'm not really a sports person, and I'm also not really somebody who likes to get into the nitty gritty of the statistics of like baseball, for example. Um, but if that's really what you like, then then for sure that I think that would be a great a great fit because it is very much like that. When I when I talk to my dad about kind of his day um, at work uh, in in different at different times. It is often uh, people coming into his into his office and saying, "Okay, I want to I want to you know interact with the database from the app, and I want to be able to get this and this and this and this data out of here, and I want to have it in this format, and I want to ask this question and get this answer." And and really, his job is all about uh, trying to help that developer solve that problem and and kind of formulate the question right, so that the question can be asked in the right way of the of the database, and then the, the data that comes back out we know will be reliable and accurate and truthful and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so if that kind of problem solving is the kind of thing that you really like, DBA is the job for you. Probably uh, something more approachable than sports, because I, I don't think people really care about baseball anymore. Don't email us. <laughs> the oldest database online that I know of, the IMDB, the Internet Movie Database, uh, has all kinds of information about films and film stars and directors and writers and stuff. So if you're the kind of person who enjoys clicking through and finding out you know, what else... Well, I just saw a new Clint Eastwood movie. What else has he directed? What did he star in? And who directed the movies that he starred in? And finding all those kind of connections between people and things, if you really enjoy that, and wish that there were a way that you could maybe pull all that information out faster than just clicking through the website, that's the kind of thing that DBAs do. Yeah, I think I think it's a great uh, a great way to, to approach it if you are not a sports fan, or particularly if you don't like baseball. Again, don't email us. I'm sure there's millions <laughs> of baseball fans. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really great, uh, another way to kind of think about it. If baseball didn't really work for you as an analogy, um, I certainly like doing, doing that. I, I, um, there's all, there's all kinds of miscellaneous trivia that I like to kind of dive into at, at various times. So if that, if that works for you, then, then definitely check that out. Um, something you can just as a small plug for iOS, um, the thing that's cool about iOS as a platform and, and Android is true. It's true of this of, of Android as well, is that we get our own database. We actually use a database called SQLite. So SQL and then the L does double duty for the language part of the initialism and also the word light. Um, and it's a, a small structured database that runs completely on the, on the device, on the actual iPhone or the iPad. And we get to interact with that um, using a thing called core data. So we kind of get to be in in some ways a sort of little mini DBA for our own app instances. And if you like if you like uh, UI UX data uh, or you know sort of traditional coding and uh, DBA, you can do all of it <laughs> in the world of iOS. As a quick plug, um, so to move on to things that are not. Uh, the next category of things, the things we're going to talk about in the rest of the episode, are going to be things that are not—they're um, not as close to the development to the code itself, uh, but they're still very important to the success of the product. So the next thing is uh, what we call DevOps, which is stands for Development Operations, and it is—if you think about what that term might mean—it is essentially what it what you might think it is. It's the all the things that are involved in. Uh, creating the software that is not uh, the things you already talked about. So not our, not the coding, not the design, not the testing, um, and not the organization and structure of the data. It's things like, for example, where do you store the code and how do you track the changing of the code over time, source control? Um, how do you manage deploying uh, finished products 
to wherever they're going to go into production. So that's whether it's a web server or the app store or whatever whatever that might be. DevOps often, if if a team if the team is big enough and it needs dedicated people to do this, the DevOps team are the people that do that. I kind of think of DevOps uh, as an analogy to if you've become interested in software and you're sort of known among your friends and family as somebody who knows about computers, then you can get leaned on for stuff like, I need to upgrade my operating system, or I'm not sure how to install this software, or uh, what kind of plug do I need to connect my phone, and, and all of those kind of things that maybe you don't really know about too much, but you're sort of pressed into service. That's kind of where DevOps came from in software companies is developers would have those sorts of questions about, well, how do I install this software on the server in in the cloud? Or how do I interact with this Amazon service or Microsoft service? How do I how do we get the new version of the software that we just wrote out into the servers and then onto users' computers possibly? Those are the things that the, the DevOps people have to answer for us the way we have to answer questions from, from friends and family. Yeah, the thing that's really kind of cool about DevOps is that it does span across really the entire team and it lets you work with uh, front-end web people and iOS people and, and, and even QA. And because there might be, DevOps even includes things like, we need a server to run automated tests on of the product um, and so the QA team might interface with the DevOps team to stand that server up and get it working and hook up all the tests and make it so that it can run. And then the DevOps team might then deliver um, essentially the product that is the automated testing suite to the, the QA team so they can use it to perform the tests. Um, or a web team might need, okay, the, the web application is finished. We want to take it from its, uh, from its testing and or development server that's local to the, comp to the company that's internal. And we want to deploy that thing out to the internet, um, but as a you know internal product development team, we either don't have the knowledge or access to do that, and so the DevOps team is empowered to you know to deliver that content um, to the server that's that's out on the internet and to set it up and make it work and everything. So it really kind of can span so many different parts of of the development team. If you like having more of a uh, either a broader view of, of the way that these products are built um, or you want to kind of be able to, to dig into lots of different kinds of things. Uh, maybe one day you're setting up a, a Git server and the next day you're learning about AWS on how to deploy a, uh, a web application to um, your API or something to a cloud instance. So uh, it's kind of cool in that it's it's in some ways can be kind of a jack of all trades where you get to you get to play around with all the technology that a company might use. And so if you're the kind of person who enjoys wiring things together, which can take a lot of different forms, uh, Ben mentioned how good the, the Chick-fil-A app is. I bet they have an API. And if you're the kind of person who thinks it would be fun to make a little Slack bot to just remind you every day at 1145 that you ought to order some chicken and then you press a button and it automates sending a message to the Chick-fil-A app so that you can go pick it up 10 minutes later. Some people, for some people, that sounds like an atrocious waste of time, but I'm positive there's a small fraction of people who think, oh my gosh, that's a great way to shave off a couple of minutes from my day. And if you think about, you'd like to automate that kind of stuff, make shortcuts on your command line so you can open up different uh, programs automatically or different groups of programs automatically. I, those are DevOps kind of concerns. 
or if you've explored the Shortcuts app on uh, on iOS, which is this kind of really cool sort of pseudo programming language where you can you can train your your iPhone to do all kinds of very complicated workflows, um, that kind of thing where you know you could, you tap a button on your phone and it does you know five or six things. It turns the lights on in your living room and it and it, it closes the shades and it does all kinds of cool you know home automation things. And that's you've created this what we used to call macros, which are these like multi step uh, things that a computer can do to kind of automate a process. Um, that is very much what DevOps does. It's, it's trying to increase the efficiency of the whole team and to manage all of the assets that the team has. So websites and mobile apps and all those kinds of things, source code. It's, it's really an interesting and, and pretty, and a, I think a pretty burgeoning sort of sector of the industry. It's, it, it, I, I don't think I even heard the term DevOps until maybe the last, what, five, six, eight years. And now it's, it's, not only is it a job, but it's a department that right. some companies, if it's if they're big enough, they don't just have one person. They have a whole room full of people that do this this kind of work. So it's definitely in demand. Yeah, the software increases in complexity and starts to involve multiple different systems and, and things talking to each other. There have to be people to manage those interactions and keep control of all those systems and co sort of keep the lights on, keep everything running at once. Okay, so that's the end, I think, of the, the really technical people. Each of the roles that we've talked about so far are likely to write code at some point or at the very least be comfortable reading over code. The next two roles are things that are still tech adjacent but are the least technical in the sense that they're not going to really have to know any JavaScript or Swift or Java or whatever. Ruby, for example. <laughs> Ruby, for example. I mean, everyone should know Ruby, but they're they're not going to have to know it for employment purposes. So the next topic uh, or job role we'll talk about is the product owner. And this is not the the customer who actually goes out and buys the thing. Right. What is that? Right. You might think if you never heard that term before, it sounds strange. And certainly the first time that I heard that term, um, I I was very confused. I'm like, do you mean the person who buys the software? What do you, what do we the, the customer standing in the store with the box in their hand? I don't I don't understand. <laughs> Because I'm old and you know used to buy software in boxes, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's actually a, it's a it's a business term, I guess. Yeah. Not really a technical term, but a business term that means um, usually a person or sometimes a group, but most of the time it, it kind of needs to be a single person. Uh, hence the the part of it meaning owner, um, where they are responsible ultimately for the uh, the quality. Um, and the success of the product itself, I kind of liken this um, this role in its in its optimal form. I feel like it's very similar to uh, a film director in the sense that their job as product owner is to sort of translate the vision, which includes things like the design documents, the um, the 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 mission statement, and and sort of overall objective of the software itself, which are very like hand wavy ephemeral things. Uh, you know, and then that turns into the UI design, and then that design turns into code, and then the code becomes the product. So, kind of to to see through that vision from uh, from concept to fruition and to deployment, and and then of course to success, like promoting the app and making people, you know, getting people to use it and and to like it and to um, to hopefully make the company money. Basically, that's the job of the product owner is to kind of is to kind of see through that vision. Um, and, and that means working very closely with the technical people and the people that um, maybe, you know, the people who are technical but non-coders, so people like UI, UX, QA, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then very importantly, they often interface with all the other people at the company. So business development, marketing, um, sales, all the people that are, I would consider to be, 
I'm going to say truly non-technical in the sense that they don't do this work, the coding work. They can be very technical in their own right, but just I just mean... Not software technical. Yeah, not software technical. Um, so all those people and, and the technical team, often, again, if this is done correctly, the product owner is supposed to be kind of the liaison between those two teams um, and help to take the the what is often very kind of hand wavy vision of other people in the company about let's say an app already exists and we want to do a massive iteration on it to make it a new to make a new version and we have all these goals for like okay it's version one it does x y and z it'd be great if we added these features and change these other features and whatever um taking all of those ideas from everyone else uh and you know the input from marketing of the reports we've gotten and engineering or the you know the um the sales and everything, and then bringing it into the engineering team and kind of translating all that into actual doable things, right? Like tasks and features that we can actually implement. That is the job of the product owner. At least that's kind of how I was described to me and, and certainly how I'd want that to work. If I, if I owned a software company and I had a product owner person, that's what I'd want them to do. Yeah. And I, I think the, the key word in there is liaison. The, this is the person who's really performs the most communication, I think, of anyone in the company. That it's not necessarily that this person uh, comes up with the vision for what the product is supposed to do, but this person has to to understand that vision and be able to, to communicate back and forth after the vision has been created, help the software people uh, come up with a list of tasks of what are we going to have to do kind of step-by-step step to get the, the vision um, realized and also to be technical enough to push back against the the marketing and and people on the other side when they come up with the new great ideas to say well wait a minute that conflicts with some of the other things that we're already committed to doing so we have to we have to figure out where can we make compromises or what things are we going to give up if we're going to add that new thing that you want yeah i think i think setting uh setting expectations and and ensuring that compromise does happen is probably the most important aspect of the product owner's job because of course that has to happen there has to be compromise you can't do everything um and uh oftentimes particularly people this is going to be my biased opinion as someone who's often part of the technical team but typically people who are not part of the, pro the programming technical team uh often will dismiss our concerns and say ah oh, it's fine you can make it happen it's not impossible whatever they because their understanding of what we do i think is somewhat limited and it's the understanding is limited which means that their assumption of our ability is unlimited right. i think that we can do literally anything um and so and often i think they think when we say no or we push back or we say, oh, that's going to be very difficult to do or we can't estimate that or whatever, they, I think, often will dismiss that as you're just not wanting to, you just don't want to do it or, or whatever. Um, and so the product owner's job is critical to make sure that, that either side doesn't have too much sort of power in that dynamic. We can't just tell the, you can't just have the engineer saying no to everything. And we also can't have the, everyone else saying yes to everything, right? That's that's just not going to be a good outcome and compromise is critical. And I think uh, when a product owner is doing their job correctly, uh, their their biggest role is to is to facilitate that compromise. Um, I Unfortunately, just in my own experience, I haven't seen that very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a difficult position, right? It, it takes a lot of different skills. You have to be able to talk to a lot of different people uh, with 
really widely varying levels of technical proficiency. And you have to get the, the engineers to understand what the business requirements are. And you have to get the business people to understand what the technical capabilities are. Yeah. And not even just can we or can't we do this, but it's also a matter of um, we could do this. But if we do, it is so complicated that it would basically take up the rest of our time for the next three months. And therefore, all of the other things you want us to do can't happen. Yeah. If we do this one thing, what else is it going to make harder in the future? Right. Or what else, because of the time spent on this, what is what else is going to get bumped off the next release because we don't have time to complete these other features or or whatever? Um, there has to be kind of a, you know, a give and take. And, and you and, and pretty much with any given piece of software that you release, you're never going to get it perfect and you're never going to get everything that you want into that product. You're going to have to say, OK, I really want feature X to ap- to appear in the app, but I don't have time in the time that I have to release it to actually finish that feature. So I'm going to have to push that to the next release. Um, and oftentimes I find that that pushing things like that, especially if that thing is an important business goal, uh, is something that, that you know the business people often don't want to compromise on. And it's like, well, okay, but you got to give me something else. Like you, you got you to give up. Like you, you can't just cram it in and expect it to be there. So every day of your job, you're in the middle of an argument, right? <laughs> like in the in between two groups that are arguing, you know, oftentimes in a productive and positive way, but nonetheless, the argument is happening, and you are by definition the one standing in in the middle trying to mediate that that discussion. I think uh, I was about to say that I thought product owner would be something that you and I would be pretty good at based on our teaching experience. We can go back and forth talking to technical versus non-technical people. But there's also sort of the aspect of the hostage negotiator with this job. (laughs) Yes. uh, Whereas in teaching, at least in the kind of teaching we did, we were telling people things they wanted to know. The product owner is often telling both sides things that they don't want to hear. (laughs) There's right exactly they're telling the engineers (laughs) hey you have to do a lot more than than we thought we were going to have to and at the same time tell uh, marketing etc no we're not going to be able to get that much done and so you you have to kind of have conflict resolution among everybody yeah and that's not a skill that i think i excel (laughs) at your, your strongest point no (laughs) <laughs> no, so I think I think that probably would not be a great role for me. Um, but but if that's the kind of thing that you like doing, you know, if if at Thanksgiving dinner you're the one that's like keeping the peace among your family or whatever, um, then maybe this is a role that you might like. Especially if if you like to kind of like DevOps, where you like to sort of dig into the technical aspects in in at least to a degree, um, so that you can understand them, and then you can convey that information properly to the business development people. But you also enjoy learning about marketing and sales and and those kinds of things. So that way you can, again, understand those ideas. And then when you turn and you face the technical team and you have to explain the business requirements, you can do so uh, in a way that that makes sense. It's kind of like being sort of a a translator, right? You're in many ways, you're you're a mediator, uh, like you said, you know, hostage negotiation (laughs) in some ways. Um, and, And I think also a translator where you have to be able to at least understand the perspectives of both sets of people so that when you turn and face the other group, you can, you can speak to them in a language that they understand. And you can also translate what you were, you know, what you found out from the other team, you know, into the language of that other team. So uh, if that's the kind of uh, work that you like, if you enjoy that experience, then I think this might be a great fit. Yeah. I, I think I would do fine with the communicating back and forth. And then I'd have to deal with the, the tension of all the conflict by saying either I get, 
every other Friday off, or we agree that once a quarter I can throw somebody through a window. That's <laughs> that's what it would require for me. All right. I uh, I don't know that that's going to be on any job description no, for this kind of role. No. <laughs> but... Well, we'll have to leave that job aside for other people with a, a little bit more patience and and move on then to our final final role of the day. Yeah, so this one is uh, it's going to sound very similar to the one we just talked about and in some ways it is similar and sometimes it even is the same job. Sometimes. I kind of argue that that it probably shouldn't be, but but in some cases that that is the case. This is project manager. Um, and so you might think, well, this is just a person who manages other people. Not really. That is true. Not, kind not of. Just that. Um but not just that, right? I mean, they they might they might actually be the manager of the people that work on the project. Um, but their primary responsibility is to manage the project, not the, necessarily the people. Um, and so that is, as you can imagine, it's a similar kind of role to product owner, right? It kind of has a, I would say, like a roughly similar scope um, and and the the responsibilities and the the accountability of the pr- of the product might be um, might be the same. I guess it also I should probably I should probably clarify. It's possible to have multiple projects within a product, um, and so you might even have multiple project managers that then all fall under the sort of onus of a product owner who is kind of overseeing the whole product. Like for example, you might have, um, uh, let's say, an application that runs on Windows, on the Mac, on iOS, on Android, and on the web, and so perhaps you have teams, technical teams, that produce those versions of the product for each platform, each one of them might have a project manager, right? You're managing the Windows project or the or the Mac project or whatever. But then you might also have someone who is kind of overall seeing the ownership of that product across those platforms. Uh, so that, that that is possible as well. And these are, I, th- I think of all the terms, the, the idea of the project manager is probably the uh, the broadest in the sense that this is, I think, the only one that really exists outside of the world of software. Yeah. You know, you can have a project manager on something like uh, building a highway or putting up a skyscraper or stuff like that. It's and, and I think it's more of a nuts and bolts kind of thing than product owner, that the, the product owner has to understand the vision and know what kind of things have to be done. And the project manager is more concerned with the, the kind of week to week, what things have to be done first and how do we know if we're, we're staying on track to hit the deadline and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's very true that it's it's more of like um, almost kind of like a foreman on a like a construction site where they're kind of overseeing the work that's being done, making sure that we're on time, that kind of stuff. Um, but it's not necessarily uh, the person you know, like in that analogy, right, you might have like an architect who designed the, the bridge. And so their their job is much is much higher level in the sense that they're like, I got to make sure the bridge actually stands up and works properly. Uh, whereas the, the foreman or the project manager on the ground is kind of overseeing the, the, the construction of the bridge and the and the work that goes on that's involved with that. Um, and it's sort of like you said, kind of more more in the weeds um, than something that's higher level. Which is not to say, in at least in software terms, that one person necessarily outranks the other the way that uh, I think on a construction site, an architect is a, generally a much bigger deal than a foreman is. And I think in software, product owner and project manager are, are a lot more on par. And like Ben said, are sometimes the same person just doing two different things. But if, if you're the sort of person who really enjoys that kind of attention to detail and keeping track of stuff and 
very good about uh, about punctuality and things on time. This is a job I would just be an absolute disaster at, by the way. <laughs> I yeah. I read a great quote the other day from Douglas Adams, you know, the guy who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that uh, yeah. he said, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make <laughs> as they fly by. Right, yeah. That's the way I live, so I don't make me a project manager ever. As someone who's gone to dinner with Brian on multiple occasions and, and sometimes uh, find a, a text going out like, hey, are you here yet? Kind of situation. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that, that you would be uh, a great fit for this. I probably wouldn't be a great fit either. I, I find uh, that stuff to be... I, I really like... I, I think I really have a strong attention to detail, but I'm also, I think, in some ways easily distracted and stuff like that. So I find that I probably wouldn't be... As far as like a taskmaster of kind of keeping everyone go beating to the same drum and and that kind of thing, I don't I don't know that I'd be very good at that. So uh, if that sounds good, fun to you though, um, particularly again, kind of like the product owner, you you would have the opportunity to to you'd be worried about scheduling and when are we going to work on these on feature X and and what is the what is the build you know what is the 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 version that we're going to release what is that going to look like and are we going to be able to hit our deadlines for you know features x y and z stuff like that it's going to be very much all about planning and scheduling and spreadsheets and stuff like that but it also might involve going to the technical team and saying i need you to help me understand what this feature is what's involved here so that i can perhaps go to someone else and explain why a feature is not going to be ready for the release, right? I need to understand enough about the feature that you're building or, or the technical limitations or problems you're running into um, to be able to go explain that to, to other people and say, look, this is not going to happen or, or, or this actually is ha it's, it's going easier than we thought and, and we'll be able to actually have time to put another feature in, right? Um, you have to be able to dig into the nitty gritty of, of the product that's being built enough so that you can understand it um, but you don't necessarily have to write the code itself. So uh, it's kind of a cool role where where you can uh, you can be sort of high level, the scheduling kind of level, but you can also be uh, at least in part kind of digging into some of these things um, to understand them better. And and if that's the kind of if that's the kind of uh, thinking that you like to do and the kind of decision decision making you like to make, then I think it might be a good role. Yeah, this is the out of all the jobs we've talked about, this is the one that you're uh, likeliest to have the opportunity to experience outside of software. You know, if you're involved in like event planning and event management, it's it's a similar kind of set of responsibilities. So if you're good with and enjoy that kind of thing, and also have some familiarity with software and how it works, and can and can talk to developers and understand how they think then project manager within a software team could be a great fit. Yeah, or let's say maybe you even are a project manager on something that is not software, right? And actually that that would even be better because it lends, you, know, you can put that experience on your resume when you go after a product manager job on a software team and say, I don't, you know, I don't know the software itself, but I have I have relevant experience of this role in a different industry and and that could certainly help you out. All right, so that concludes our whirlwind summary of jobs that are not quite software, but close. Soft, almost software. Almost software. Software adjacent. If you like working near code, but not on code, there are a lot of opportunities. And there are, I know people in each of these roles who have very interesting, fulfilling careers. So if you've maybe uh, gone through a boot camp or have played around with software and think, I want to be a part of this world, but I don't want to be in a code editor all day. There are a lot of things that you can do. 
All right, that completes today's episode, but we have many other episodes in our backlog. And Ben, if people would like to explore some of those, where can they go and what can they do? Our great website at mvc.fm has everything you need to know about our show. You can listen to all the past episodes, learn how to subscribe. We're pretty much available anywhere you get your podcast from. So if you have a favorite podcast app, just search for Model View Conversation and you should be able to find us. If you use iTunes or the Apple Podcast app to do so to get your podcasts, we'd love a rating and review that will really help us out. And lastly, if you'd like to send feedback or maybe suggestions for future episodes, we're available on Twitter at MVC Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.